So, uh, as I said earlier, we are concluding a series. This is one of the longer series we've done here. Usually we do a three- or four-week series. This has been an eight-week series, so it's been a little longer, and today I get the pleasure of concluding it. Um, our, our, our task, when we kind of started this off uh, eight weeks ago, was to address this idea of Christian, and it's not what you think. And, and really, if you were to listen to the series, if you haven't been here for the seven weeks, we'll give you, we're going to do just a quick kind of update. We're actually not talking about being a Christian, because... Um, Christian, as we find out, had this kind of branding problem. What we've really set out to do is to really look at what it means to follow after Jesus and what does the Bible have to say about that? What does Jesus have to say about that? Uh, and the hope in this is that we would all kind of take a step back and look at our lives and look at what we've kind of ascribed to, this, this faith or this church or this, this way of doing things. Maybe I was raised to believe this way and I never considered anything different or perhaps somebody brought me to church and this is all I've ever heard about things. But uh, the hope is that we would kind of take a step back and kind of look at how we live and line it up with how Jesus said we should live and are we actually doing what Jesus said we would do. This morning, I'm going to kind of step back to the beginning and do a quick catch-up to get us up here, and then we're going to talk about something that I'm excited about because I think it has the ability, if, if we were to actually hear it, and, and not just hear, but actually do what we talk about, it actually has the ability to change how we would live the rest of our lives. So we, we've set up from the very beginning with, with this statement that um, Christianity really has kind of a, a branding problem. Really, it, we, it has this, this almost this, this branding issue. Christianity, if Christians really, this term Christians, isn't even something that Jesus used to describe us. Uh, it's something that, that non-Jesus followers used to describe Jesus followers. It was actually kind of a derogatory term, and, and because that, Christians kind of did whatever they wanted. It was loosely defined. You can kind of be whoever you wanted and live however you wanted and, and do whatever you wanted to do. And because of that, we, this, this, this kind of... Uh, a stigma set in with Christians. And if this is your, your first time in church and, and you don't ascribe this, you're not even sure if you really buy into any of this, but you had nothing better to do on a rainy Sunday morning, so you found yourself here. Um, you came on a good Sunday morning because you're going to be a little overwhelmed with information, but my guess is we're, what we're going to say this morning is how you've probably felt about Christians. The, the truth is Christians ha have become known as these kinds of people. We've, be, we've become known as judgmental, homophobic moralists who think that they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. We said that in, in week one, so if you missed week one, we're going to say it again. If you call yourself a Christian, if you, if you ascribe to coming to church and you ascribe to this faith, this is kind of the reputation we have in our culture. You're judgmental, homophobic moralists who think that you're the only ones going to heaven and you're secretly excited about the fact that everyone else is going to hell. And then there's this, this famous, famous author, her name was, was Anna Rice. She uh, <clears throat> wrote a bunch of really intriguing statements about Christianity. She grew up in the faith, and then as a, she got older, she kind of rebelled and turned against the faith and abandoned her faith. And then as an adult, she actually came back to faith again. And then at, at some point in her life, she made some famous statements about quitting Christianity. It's almost like she abandoned her faith again, but she said, I'm not abandoning my faith. I'll never abandon Jesus. I will always believe in him as my, my Savior and as my Lord. But, but I, can't, uh, I, I can't be a part of what I'm seeing in this, this group that, that I've associated with, that I would say well, we're all Christians because they don't kind of behave the same way. And she made some, some very clear kind of derogatory statements about those of us who would call ourselves Christians. She said that they become known as this. They are quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious. Disputation is a word we don't use very often, but it's a really intriguing word. It's like they are, are always in the act of quarreling. They're always in the act of arguing. They're always ready to just kind of pounce on the next thing and fight it. That's what Christians have become known for. Quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and a deservedly infamous group. And because of that, I've got to kind of step away. I've got to kind of quit this idea of Christianity because that's not what I see when I look 
at the scriptures. And really, that's the real problem, is that we can all call ourselves Christians, but we can kind of believe any way we want because Jesus never called his followers Christians. Those were words given by people who didn't follow Jesus to people who did follow Jesus. And because it was just kind of loosely defined, as a matter of fact, it's only mentioned three times in the whole scripture in all the New Testament. You only find the word Christian mentioned three times, and it's used as a derogatory word towards those who follow Jesus. So you can be a Christian, and you can kind of believe whatever you want. You can be a Christian, you can kind of do whatever you want. But when Jesus addressed his, his, his followers, he had a different word for them. When Jesus looked out and he saw the people who were following him, he said, no, you're not Christians. He said, you're my disciples. And, and the term disciple is really kind of narrowly defined. He said, you're the people who, who follow me. You're the people who are going to be like me, who are going to do what I did and say what I said. That's a disciple, somebody who follows after me and models their life after me and tries to become like me. You see, it, it's not just theological, it's not just philosophical, it's actually quite practical. And then later, towards the end of his ministry, he's, he's now lived his life on earth. He's, he's for two and a half years traveled with his disciples, and he's taught some amazing things, some radical things. He's performed miracles. He's walked on water. He's done all of these things. It's kind of the culmination of his, of his career as a minister. He's sitting with his disciples at the final Passover meal, and this is kind of the, the climax of his ministry. Here's how I want to top it off. I'm not going to get to have this meal with you again. I'm really not going to get to teach you again, because after this, a bunch of bad stuff's going to happen followed by some good stuff. But this being the last time I get to talk to you, here's what I want you to remember forever. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Not Christians. You're my followers. You're the people who want to look like me and act like me and be like me, who are going to model their lives after me. If you love one another. And that is such a powerful statement. And we've covered it so many times, but it's so amazing because he could have filled the blank in with anything, right? I mean, think about it. There are hundreds of things you could have filled that blank in with. By this, everyone will know that my, you are my disciples. If you go to church every Sunday, if you believe the way I believe, if you follow every law to the T, if, if you, and just fill in the blank with whatever you want. But Jesus said, Here, here's what I want. I want the world to be able to look at you and say, he must be a disciple based on how you treat other people. Not the jewelry on your neck, not your Sunday morning attendance, not the sticker on your car, not the fact that you carry around a Bible. No, no, all, all that stuff, that's all kind of semantics. He said, Here, here's what I'm really concerned about. I want the world to be able to judge you. I want them to be able to look at you and say, you must be a disciple of Jesus based on how you treat other people. That's powerful. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't like it, do we? It's a whole lot easier to just carry around a Bible. It's a whole lot easier to just slap a sticker on my car. It's a whole lot easier to just say the, the thing that everyone's saying. He said, no, 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 no. This, I'm raising the game. When I leave and you come after me, I want the world to know that you're my followers based on how well you love one another. And another point in Jesus' life, he's teaching and the uh, Disciples with him and people with him, a bunch of Pharisees are with him. These are the teachers of the law. They ask him a question. They're always trying to trick Jesus with questions. And he's so brilliant in these environments. Sometimes he doesn't even respond to the question. He just asks another question to kind of throw him off. But on this one occasion, he answers the question. They come to him to try to trick him. They say, hey, Jesus, 
<clears throat> you claim to be the son of God, so you should know God's heart. He gave us all these laws in, in our scripture. What's the most important law? What's the most important commandment? Thinking they could trip Jesus up, Jesus was ready to answer. See, they already have an answer prepared based on their, their, the tradition of the elders, the tradition of the law. They know the answer. Jesus, do you know the answer? Jesus, what's the most important law? You know this. This is so familiar. We cover this all the time. Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And before they could slip their hands up to ask another question to try to trip him up, Jesus continues. He says, and the second is like it. Whoa, 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 Jesus. We asked for one. We asked for one great command, the greatest command. There's no two. You said, no, no, you can't have one. I've got to give you two. But there's only one. No, there's two. And it's not like given an order of importance. It's given kind of an order of sequence. You can't do one without doing the other. They go together. You can't separate them. They're together. So the first we know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. It's first and greatest. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And before anything else can continue, he says something here that is, is so powerful. I don't know how we've missed it. I don't know how for years and years as people who claim to follow Jesus and claiming, claim to be his disciples, I don't know how we've missed it. It's like this was written thousands of years ago. It's in the scripture. How did we not know this? And we always look for other ways. How do I, how do I show people that I love Jesus? And, and, and how do I, I have to follow all these things? No, 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 no. If you were just to get those two things right, love God and love your neighbor, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. 25 years after this, the apostle Paul would come back to this and try to write about it and explain it. 30 to 40 years after this, the apostle John would come back to what Jesus said and try to explain it. All the law. Jesus, there's like 613 laws, then there's the Ten Commandments. Yeah, all, all of them. But what about all this new stuff that's coming out from, from you know, the, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and, and Paul's starting to come around, and he's writing letters. Yeah, everything that, that was written before, and all this new stuff that's coming in after. All of it hangs on those two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the thou shalt's, you know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, all, all, all the thou shalt's, right? Thou shalt honor your father and mother and, and all, all those laws, everything that's ever given, all comes under and hangs on these two things. Are you going to love God or are you going to love people? And, and, and thousands and thousands of, of pages of Scripture and, and, and other pages of books have been written to try to explain all of the gospel. And you said, nope, if you could just get this, you'd get everything else. If you could just do this. See, but as Christians, we're, we talked about this last week, we're so quick to kind of look for loopholes and workarounds and, and pull something out and stand on that one thing and forget everything else. And, and just, nope, nope. If you were to just... Take this and stand on this. You would be fulfilling everything else. 
So we talked about this last week. Last week. So then in, in every relationship, in every situation, every time we kind of open the pages of Scripture and we try to look at, you know, what should I do and how do I fulfill these things and, and how do I live right and how do I honor God and how do I honor my mother and, and, and how do I take care of the people that I love and the people that I don't love? Like, what do I do with them? Every time we open the pages of Scripture, how do I become a better parent? How do I become a, a, a better employee or an employer? How, how do I do what, anything in the Scripture? We have to filter all of that through this question that the the first century people filtered things through. What does love require of me? You see, what's amazing is when when this whole idea was given, they didn't have a New Testament. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I mean, maybe a few years after Jesus, things started to trickle in, and in certain groups, you'd see a letter that was given by Mark, and you'd read it, and then it'd be passed on. And maybe if you lived in Rome, you would have gotten a letter or two from Paul, or if you lived in Corinth, maybe even three or four letters from Paul. If you lived in Ephesus, maybe Paul actually showed up one time. But they didn't have the scripture. They didn't have the documents. They didn't have the internet to study. They didn't have people coming by to explain all these things. They had had one simple command that every time they were kind of backed up into a corner, they relied on this. How do I love people like Jesus loved me? That in every situation, with, with, with everybody I'm surrounded with, the people I love, the people I don't love, the Romans, what does love require of me? See, the most amazing thing about this statement, this, the brilliance in this statement, and that's really what I want to try to talk about this morning, is the brilliance of what Jesus said here. It, it's so incredible because it, it was built on our, our kind of personal experience. I mean, he could have said anything in that moment. Here's how I want the world to know that you're my follower. And we could have filled the blank in with anything. I mean, there's some good morals, some good spirits, some good, like, just good, kind things we could do. He said, nope, that's not it. It's how you love one another. And it all comes back to us and our personal experience. Let let, let me say it another way. When we kind of ask this question, what does love require of us? And we really kind of look inside. How are we going to love? And that's kind of based on on this idea that there are two two kind of categories of people in your world who made you who you are. There are two categories of people in your world who who either kind of set you up for success or maybe set you up to not be successful. There are two categories of people in your life who who taught you how to love well or maybe taught you how how to not love well. Two categories of people who taught you how to be a good, a, a good husband or a good wife or, or, or a good boyfriend or girlfriend or how to pursue you know, your life partner. There are two categories of people who, who have done this in, in your life. There are two categories of people for all of us, even though I may not know you. And we all have different backgrounds and we all have different scenarios in our life, but there are two categories of people that have kind of set us up to be who we are and, and to, to treat the relationships in our lives the way we're treating them. And the two categories of people are this. There are those who have hurt you, and there are those who have loved you. Those who've hurt you and those who loved you. Those who hurt you deeply and those who loved you profoundly. And if you ever were to see a counselor because you kind of bumped up against something in your life that you couldn't get by, every good counselor takes you right here because that's the question. You are who you are. And as a spouse, you are who you are because of how somebody either hurt you deeply or loved you profoundly. You are who you are as a parent because of how somebody loved you or hurt you. It had nothing to do 
with, with their theology. It had nothing to do with what they believed. It had everything to do with how they behaved. There are people who had the most accurate theology, who studied Scripture, who have hurt you so deeply that you spent the rest of your life kind of walking through life with a limp. There are people who, who take place on a platform like I do and talk to people like I do and have great theology and, a, and, a, and they just love people well. Yet they groomed and manipulated and hurt children and now fill prison cells, even with the most accurate theology. See, it, it's not so much about what you believe, it's about how you're behaving. Jesus wasn't so consumed with the idea of you got to believe, you got to believe, you got to believe. He even said later, he said, I would rather you be a doer of the word than just a hearer. It's, it's are you going to behave? Are you going to do something with what you've learned? There are fathers, mothers, coaches, teachers, grandparents. Somewhere along your life, somebody came in and, and, and they just impacted you in such a significant way. They saw a glimmer of hope and, and, and they loved you and they fed into you and they encouraged you. And now your outlook on life is completely different. You're full of esteem and you're full of hope. And somebody else came along and they spoke a lie and they took advantage and they manipulated and they hurt. You spend the rest of your life going through life with a limp. See, that's what Jesus was concerned about. It's not what you say you believe. It's how you behave. That's how people will know you're my follower. And the truth is for you, whether you've been loved deeply and profoundly, or you've been hurt and you've been scarred, and you're going through life with a limp, see, the way you've been treated has more to do with who you are than what you believe. The way you've been treated is going to impact the way you then treat others. Not how you, you believe you want to treat others, but how you're actually going to treat them. You see, somewhere along the way, Jesus' followers, Jesus' disciples who lived this and were backed into a corner and loved and every time they were kind of pushed back, they would ask the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? Somewhere along the way, it's almost like they kind of lost focus. Somewhere along the way, it's almost like, like the church, like us, who we would call ourselves Christians, it's almost like we kind of lost focus. And, and, and somewhere along the way, we went from, from how we behave to how we believe. And over time, it became more important to just believe right. You just, well, what do you believe? Just, well, what do you believe? The question's about, well, what are you doing? No, that doesn't matter. What do you believe? And believing became more important. We don't have a time to do a full study of this, but it's not hard to see where we've kind of lost track as, as people who followed after Jesus, as his disciples. It's like we went from being disciples to just being Christians because it, it was, we were so much concerned about what you believe. And so much money and so much time and so much energy has been spent on, on, on men who say they follow Jesus and, and they're arguing over what Jesus said or what Jesus meant by what he said. And they write books and books and books about all the intricacies and, and all the wordplay and all the tense and the tone about what Jesus said, but they forgot to actually live as Jesus lived. 
And we get so caught up in this. What do you believe? And, and what do you believe? And well, you're not believing right. You just said, no, no, no. For a minute, put all of that aside. It's more than just what you believe. It's how are you behaving? See, the West was won when we learned to live like Jesus. Not simply believe like Jesus. And if we would learn to just do what Jesus did instead of arguing about what Jesus said, the world could change again. But we're so caught up in this that we forget about this. And the truth is, this is easy. But this, in a lot of cases, it requires a whole new world view. That's why what Jesus said was so brilliant and so powerful and so remarkable. Because here's what he could have said. He could have said, a new command I give you. Believe correctly. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you simply believe correctly. And we might laugh, but the truth is, isn't that what we become? Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm going to make it so much more simple for you. Just love one another. Just love like I love. And every time there's push, and every time you're faced with a new decision as a parent or as a mother or a father or a husband or a wife or just an employee or an employer, a leader, just ask yourself, what would love require of me? And every time you're face-to-face, and this is where it gets really challenging, with people who, who you don't like, right? The, the, the neighbor who annoys you and the people down the road who just grate on you and, they, you know, they fly by your house at 55 miles an hour and you have kids and every time you run to the window screaming, I know I'm not, we're not the only ones, right? Come on. <clears throat> every time you're face-to-face with that kind of, uh, of opposition or that kind of decision, every time you face the person who hurt you most, who hurt you deeply, you're faced with this question, And that's hard for us, isn't it? They hurt us. But Jesus died for them. What does love require of me? Do you know why Jesus seemed so inconsistent in Scripture? And I find this so interesting. He was so inconsistent in Scripture at times, it just didn't make any sense. You'd see two stories, right? Jesus, two rich men came to Jesus at one point in his ministry at different times. One rich man came and said, Jesus, what do I have to do to to inherit the kingdom of God? He said, you have to sell everything you have and follow me. And he went away all depressed. I can't do that. Look at all I have. Another rich guy comes to Jesus. Jesus, I'm going to follow after you. What do I do? Jesus said, you're just so close. You're so close. Jesus, why didn't you say to him what you said to the first guy? Like the first guy, that's so hard. He has to sell everything. He spent his whole life working for this. He has to give it all away to follow you. And this other guy, it's like, yeah, you're, you're right there. Why the inconsistency? I think Jesus would say because they're, they're two different people with two different stories and two different hearts. And it's like every time when you read through the, the scriptures, every time Jesus interacted with, with a person, it's like he looked at that person, but he looked past that person to their story and he knew what needed to be said. He knew the intent That's why sometimes the the Pharisees would ask questions and he wouldn't even answer the question. He knew the intent of the question. But he knew their stories. 
and he knew their heart. That's why sometimes you hear us say, that's why stories matter so much. That's why people matter so much. Because every story represents a person, and every person matters to God. God looked at their stories. Jesus looked at their stories and said, here's what he needs, and here's what they need. And it may seem inconsistent, but he looked at each one, and it's almost as if he asked himself this question. What does love require of me in this moment? In light of who I am, in light of who they are, in in light of what I've been through, in light of what they've been through, what does love require of me? See, believing is so much easier than behaving. But for generations and generations and generations, Christians have been content with simply believing correctly. It's why we spend all of our time making a point i got to make my point. i got to make my point. i got to make my point. It's why we spend all of our time on social media arguing and fighting. You don't believe me? Open up any one of your social media apps right now and check your Christian friends. Guarantee there's a fight somewhere in the first three, three posts. It's like we just fulfilled Anna Rice's, right? We're just disputatious. We just love to argue and to fight. When Jesus said, I didn't come to make a point. I came to make a difference. And you can believe correctly and make a point. Or you can behave correctly. You can behave like me. You can love one another. And you can make a difference. And that happens best when you love like I loved. So here's what I want to do for the next few minutes. We're going to just look at, at how do we love like Jesus loved. We're going we're to look at, at really three statements, and these are, are three statements that I think are really powerful, that if we kind of filter this through in, in every situation, with every time we're, we're face-to-face, we're eyeball-to-eyeball with someone, every time we kind of encounter a person that perhaps we are in agreement with or not agreement with, or we have to make a decision about how to raise our children and parent, or what decision should we make? And we have to ask ourselves the question, what does love require of me? There are three statements that I think are really powerful statements that actually come all the way back to that scripture we just looked at. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, when we look at that most of the time, we look at that and we only see kind of two relationships that are mentioned there, loving God and loving people. But we forget Jesus said, I want you to love people as you would love yourself. Jesus is assuming you're going to love yourself because the truth is we all kind of love ourselves, right? If you were to vote for president, who would you vote for? Me, because I'll do it better than anyone else. We, we all kind of love ourselves. There are three relationships there, and these are three statements kind of based off those three relationships that, that if we begin to, to, to think through, what does love require of me? Here's what love actually requires of you. If you were going to kind of wrestle this to the ground, last week, here was my application. Just think about this for a week. In every situation, you don't even have to do anything because it's really hard to wrap our heads around even asking that. But once you've asked that question, what do you do? Here's what you do. What does love require of me? Don't do anything that will hurt you. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Two, don't do anything that will hurt someone else. Three, don't be mastered by anything. What does love require of me? Love requires of you that you don't do anything that will hurt you. Why? Because your heavenly father loves you. And anything you do that hurts you, it hurts him. Just like anything my daughters were to do to themselves, it hurts me. And if you don't have kids, I don't know that you really understand that, but as a parent, you you get that, don't you? And that hurts. 
When your kids do something that hurts you, it hurts you. God said it's the same way. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says it this way. <clears throat> if you could throw that scripture up for me. No? There you go. <clears throat> do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You were bought at a price. God paid the ultimate price for you because he loves you so much. Don't do anything that hurts you because your heavenly father loves you. That's what love requires of you. Never make a moral decision or, or a, a sexual decision or a relational decision or an ethical decision or a professional decision that would hurt you because God loves you. When you hurt you, you hurt the one who loves you and the ones who love you the most. You hurt the people who are depending on you, which brings us to step two, because then you're in violation of the next one. Don't hurt you. And don't hurt anyone else. What does love require of you? That you don't do anything to hurt someone else. And I'm not talking like military stuff or law enforcement. The New Testament speaks to that very clearly, very, very plainly. <coughs> Don't do anything that's going to hurt anyone else. Don't do anything that would put somebody else in a position to be hurt. Everyone you ever eyeball to eyeball, everyone you ever see, everyone you ever encounter is someone that God loves so much that he sent his only son to die for. And you might love them or you might hate them. They may be the people that hurt you the most. They may be the person that hurt you the deepest. Yet your heavenly father loved them enough to send his son for them. Never do anything that hurts someone else. Never use Christian, Christianity or, or theology as an excuse to hurt someone else. And we do this kind of thing all the time. Well, that's not what I believe. So I have to stand on what I believe and I'm, I'm just going to offend everybody. Don't use <clears throat> the words given by the commander to hurt the people the commander loves the most. What was the intent of the command? To love one another. Don't stalk. Don't lie. Don't gossip. Don't groom. Don't manipulate. Don't do anything to hurt someone else. Sometimes you have to think this almost like, like, like <clears throat> your love is like a scalpel, not a knife. It's not a blunt instrument that you're going to go in and cause a lot of damage. It's a scalpel, and you're going to go in, and you're going to, to intricately cut something out. You're going to intricately put something in. See, this makes it uncomfortable for us because what this really requires from us is confession and confrontation. If I really love you and I've done something to hurt you, then I've got to confess that to you. And that hurts. It's a scalpel. It's not a knife. I'm going to have to say some things that, that have hurt you that you know about, and that's going to be really awkward. But you know what's really awkward? When I've done something that hurts you that you don't know about, and now I've got to go and confess the thing that hurts you. Sometimes it requires confrontation. You've done something that hurts me. 
And for years and years, I've let you get away with it. I've let it slide. And I've done it in the name of, oh, I love you. But really, that's not the case. It's I've done it because I love me and I want to save me from the confrontation. But because I love you so much, I'm going to confront the thing that you've done that's hurt me. And I'm going to love you because God loves you. It requires precision like a scalpel. And maybe you're here, and, and as we're saying this, you're already thinking of the people that you need to confess to. Or, or maybe the people you need to confront. Maybe you, you leave here and, and you're on your way home and somebody has that confrontational conversation with you. Ask yourself the question, what in this moment does love require of me? It may mean confession. It may mean confrontation. But it absolutely means you don't do anything to hurt somebody that God loves. And that is anybody you will come eyeball to eyeball with in this life. And then finally, don't be mastered by anything. And don't be mastered by anything because when you're mastered by something, you're not free to love others. You're not free to love God. You're not free to love the people around you because you've been mastered by something. You're indebted to something else. If you remain mastered, it will keep you from loving someone, ultimately God. And no one should have to live that way. No one should have to live with you and bump up against you and, and, and think they're loved but not be loved because you're mastered by something else. No one should have to be a victim of your alcohol. No one should have to be a victim of, of your a, a prescription drug addiction. No one should have to be the victim of your porn addiction. No one should have to be the victim of your temper and your anger. No one should have to be the victim of the rage that sits inside you. No one should have to be the victim of the thing that you're mastered to. So don't be mastered by anything. Don't allow it to control you because it will keep you from loving the one who loves you the most and the ones who love you the most. If you're mastered by something, it will be absolutely impossible to love someone. So rule your appetites. Don't allow your appetites to rule you. You know what's amazing? We hear this and immediately our minds go to the person we wish heard this message, don't we? It's like the very thing that kind of offended us about Christianity to begin with, is that somebody would impose what's happening to them on me. You're sitting here and you're thinking, I'm so glad my husband's here to hear this message. I can't wait to get home and tell my wife how church was today. I'm going to call my son in college and I'm going to have him listen to this message like three times this week. Don't be the thing that you resent about Christianity. What if, what if just for a moment you owned only the things you could own? Don't worry about somebody else. Let, let God worry about somebody else. What if, what if just for, for a moment you said, I'm, going, I'm not going to do things that hurt me. I'm not going to make decisions that continue to hurt me and continue to, to sacrifice my ability to love those around me. What if for a moment you said, I'm not going to do anything that will ever hurt somebody else. I'm not going to gossip anymore. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to take advantage of. I'm, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to put myself in a position where I can gain from their downfall. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to love like Jesus loved. And I'm going to confess when I've done something wrong. And I'm going to confront people when I feel like, like perhaps I've allowed them to do too much and it's hurting me and it's hurting others. 
What if we just, for a moment, focused on ourselves? We got out the scalpel. We cut out that little piece of us that, that we know isn't right so that we could love ourselves and love others and not be mastered by anything. For some of you, that means a hard conversation. For some of you, it means just sitting down and really assessing your life and the decisions you've made. And you can look back and you can see all that's brought you here and say, I can't do that again and I can't do that again and I won't ever do that again. You see, when, when Jesus followers, and this is what's amazing about this, when the, when the church, when Jesus followers, when we learn to leverage this, this whole idea of, of loving one another, when we learn to leverage anything other than loving one another, we actually lose all leverage. When we, when we learn to, to, to leverage anything else than love one another, we've lost all leverage. And when we look at our culture, when we look at where we are as, as a nation, it's like we've lost it already. If not, we're, we're, we're dramatically losing it every day. And, and what's interesting is it's, it's not because of, of politics. It's not because, you know, there's, there's Republicans and there's Democrats. It's not because of, of denominations. It's really not because of any of those things. It's not even because of, of belief. It's because many, many, many decades ago, the, the, the church grew into a position of power. We had all the money. We had all, all, all the political persuasion, and we had everything we needed to influence legislation. And at some point, we began to leverage something else besides love. And in doing so, we lost all of our leverage. You see, but if we could get this right, it could change the world, because it already did once. Once upon a time, there were a handful of Jesus followers that had nothing they had no leverage, they had no power, they had no money, they had nothing. All they had was this one command. Love one another. And they did. And they loved the people around them. And then they loved the people in their city. And then Rome came against them almost as a war, as a front. And they loved their enemy. And over the course of time, that changed a culture and a civilization. Not war, not politics, not money, love. They had no New Testament to fall back on. They had no writings, no teachings. They had the one command. This is how everyone will know you're my disciples. If you love one another. And the generation that were to get that right, the generation that were to put all of those, those other things aside and say, the thing I want to leverage the most is my love for others. When that takes precedence over denomination and over you know, uh, race and over affiliation and, and, and over <clears throat> you know, life choice, that we are going to love one another. That generation will see the world change. And people won't feel coerced because there's nothing to coerce them into. They'll feel drawn. They'll feel drawn right up to the edge. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see what, what it could be like. And no one's going to push them in, and no one's going to drag them in. They'll be drawn in. And they won't feel guilty. 
They won't be condemned. Although we know when they take part, there's this thing that doesn't sit right in them. Because they'll look at the relationships that we have and and the marriages that we have, and they'll feel like, I want that. And what what makes that so unique to you? And why is that so different than anywhere I see anywhere else? And they'll want that. They're not going to feel guilty. The generation that gets that right is the generation that will see the world change. Jesus said, by this, Everyone will know that you are my disciples if we love one another. We come back to this time and time and time again. And you may be sick of hearing it, but this is the only thing that's going to change what happens in your world and in your life. You see, I, I, can preach, uh, I, I, I can preach all the things that you want to preach, and we can try to legislate good behavior and legislate good parents and, and, and legislate how, how to take care of each other well, but, but it never seems to work because legislation and preaching, it, it, that's not what changes it. It's when we begin to behave this way and act this way, act as Jesus act and love as Jesus loved, that people from the outside look at it and they want it so bad it almost becomes irresistible. And that's when things change. What does love require of me? Don't hurt me. Don't hurt the people around me. And don't ever be mastered by anything. And when you can do that, you can love like Jesus loved. Unconditionally. Sacrificially. Every person you're ever eyeball to eyeball with is someone God loved so much who was willing to send his own son into the world. We should love them the same. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for the conclusion of this incredibly challenging message. God, we often talk about love and we use cute anecdotes. Well, God is love and, and, and it feels really sweet and really nice and really comfortable. But the truth is, Lord, your love is... God, it's radical, and it feels dangerous, and it feels like you're pushing us to to, to boundaries we aren't always comfortable with. But Lord, you went there yourself. You loved so much that it caused you to sacrifice your own son. God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with that kind of love, that we would, would, God, in every situation, in every relationship, ask ourselves this question. What does love require of me? And that we would filter it through those three statements, Lord, to love others. Don't do anything that would hurt someone else. Don't do anything that would hurt me. And to never be mastered by anything. God, I pray that you'd give us the courage, God, to ask these statements and the wisdom to begin to walk it out. And that as we learn to behave like Jesus behaved, God, it would almost become irresistible to those around us and irresistible to us. And we would begin to see change in our families and in our communities, God, and even in our nation. If we who called ourselves Christians would really become disciples and love one another. I thank you for all these things. In your son, our Savior's name I pray.